Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Jesus spoke this parable to his disciples. The kingdom of heaven is like a man on his way abroad, who summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one, each in proportion to his ability. He then set out. The man who had received the five talents promptly went and traded with them and made five more. The man who had received two made two more in the same way. But the man who had received one went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now a long time after, the master of the servants came back and went through his accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more. Sir, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. Here are five more that I have made. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have shown you can be faithful in small things. I will trust you with greater. Come and join in your master's happiness. Next, the man with the two talents came forward. Sir, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. Here are two more that I have made. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have shown you can be faithful in small things. I will trust you with, with greater. Come and join in your master's happiness. Last came forward the man who had the one talent. Sir, he said, I had heard you were a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid and I went off and hid your talent in the ground. Here it is, it was yours, you have it back. But his master answered him, You wicked and lazy servant, so you knew that I reap where I have not scattered? Well then you should have deposited my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have recovered my capital with interest. So now, take the talent from him, and give it to the man who has five talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have more than enough. But from the man who has not, even what he has will be taken away. As for this good-for-nothing servant, throw him out into the dark, where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth." So this is another parable. In fact, it's really the last parable in Matthew because after that we have the account of the return of the king with the sheep and the goat in Matthew 25. We are in Matthew 25. 
This is really not a parable, the sheep and the goats. So that's really the last parable in Matthew. And it's, it's not a very pleasant one in some respect. So we're in Matthew 25. We're in Jerusalem. We're in the temple. And we are listening to Jesus who is talking to us about the last things. And he has begun quite a, already quite some time. Uh, remember, we had the parable of the ten virgins last week. And then before that, we had a whole discourse on the last things. And then we had, before that even, we had the wedding banquet, the parable of the wedding banquet. All that has to do with, with the last things. And this is the last week of his life. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for the future. So it's about us being ready, or rather Jesus telling his disciples how to handle things while he is away. And we have this very clearly in this parable with the, the master who goes away and then comes back. So that's really about us now, but about our future as well. Now, there's something in this parable, like every parable of Jesus, there seems to be something quite off, something completely unrealistic. So it's both something very familiar, or that would be very familiar to people at the time of Jesus, not so to us now, 2000 years later, something that people would be able to um, recognize and be familiar with, a context of a master with servants. In fact, the, the word used in that text is not servant, it's slave. So those people, the three servants are three slaves, but the master of a big property who goes away. So that's something fine. We, we can all relate to that. But then there's, there's something that grates in the parable, something quite unjust. First of all, they're not given the same amount. They're not treated the same way. And then it seems at first view, when we first hear that parable, that there's something really harsh in the treatment of the, the, the servant who had been given only the one talent and who buried it in the ground. The way that the master answers him, you wicked and lazy servant, but at least he got the talent that he was given and, and is happy to hand it back. So it's not like he's a, a thief or anything. But then as for this good for nothing servant, throw him out into the dark where there will be weeping, weeping and grinding of teeth. This seems really harsh and quite unjust, quite unfair, especially in our current mentality where we're very keen on equality and equal chances. And, and this whole parable seems, you know, riddled with, with all sorts of unfair aspects. And so this is precisely where we're called to question it, where it's asking for us a, a bit of an effort in trying to understand it. And we, we've come across uh, aspects of, of apparent injustice in other parables, certainly the workers in the vineyard, where the workers who come up at the 11th hour are paid exactly the same amount as those who have been working all day. Or the parable of the prodigal son, where the, the son who comes back after having squandered everything is almost rewarded for it. 
and when the, the, the son who's been working all his life is, is not considered in any way at all. The, the, the parable of the, of the wedding where the man who doesn't turn up with his wedding garment is thrown out with, again, with weeping and grinding of teeth. This is really tough. This is really hard to understand. How can we make sense of this? And so this is really a cue for us to understand that the things of God and the dealings of God and the kingdom of God, because these are parables of the kingdom of God, is not like the dealings of men and the things of men and the kingdom of the world. It is not like that. There's something different about it. And this is where we are called to grapple with it, to understand it, so that we we find what is it that sets this kingdom of God apart, that makes it unlike any other kingdom that we know, that makes it unlike any other human reality, because it's a divine reality. So let's have a look at that. First of all, the question we need to ask ourselves, whose property is it that we're dealing with and whose responsibility? The uh, parable is very clear the kingdom of heaven, so it's about the things of God. It's not about the things of the world. A man on his way abroad. Now, this man is then qualified because he has an enormous amount of money. He's able to give talents. Now, a talent would be the equivalent of a 15 years worth of labor for a normal laborer. One single talent. And he gives this enormous wealth. So, he entrusts his property to his slaves. Now, what does the man own? He actually owns not only the talent, not only the property, but he also owns the slaves. He owns everything. He's the master. And that's the the title that he will be given after that in the parable. He's the master. He owns everything. And as he owns everything, he decides things as he wants. And to some extent, this is where the, is required from, from us the humility to accept the things of God as God has decided them, not as we wish them to be in some way. And, and that requires of us a little bit of humility and a little bit of trust. No one in this parable is outside of the realm of the master. No one is independent from the master. Both the the wealth and the servants are the property of the master. That's the ownership of the master over everything and everyone. So when we realize that the servants are actually slaves, what is astonishing in this parable is that the master would give his wealth to his own slaves. And a word that is coming back in the English translation here is untrusted. The man is trusting his wealth to his own slaves. And none of this is outside of his property, if you want. It doesn't mean that then he he relinquishes his property, because when he comes back, he wants to claim his property. A long time after, the master of the servants came back and went through his account with them. So it's not like the master has given over his property to be owned by the slaves and he's coming out of the picture. It's still, he still owns everything, 
property and slaves. But what he has given his slaves is a part of responsibility in looking after his property, which is extremely generous and to some extent slightly foolish. What sort of master would just go away and completely trust his slaves with the entirety of his property? Now, the fact that he decides, it's obviously him who decides to give a different share of the property to the slaves according to his ability. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to a third one, to a third one, each in proportion to his ability. Who's in charge of deciding that? The master, the, the it's not the slaves, seemingly, who are saying, well, I want five and I want two and I want one. The master knows his servants. And we will be able to then discern what sort of ability is that, uh, what are we talking about? But here, because it, it has to do with wealth, we, we assume it has to do with being able to be trustworthy and being able to make good investments, if that's what it's about. What seems unfair, though, is that the master doesn't say, look, now I want you to invest my money. He doesn't give any sort of um, directives. He leaves them completely free to do whatever they want with his own property. And that's quite something. Another very striking aspects from the text, and just from the text only, is the difference between the first two slaves and the, and the last one. The first two have no problem immediately after the master leaves, they have no problem immediately to go and invest the money. The man who had received the five talents promptly went and traded with them and made five more. The man who had received two made two more in the same way, immediately. And, and that shows enormous trust, enormous trust in the master, enormous trust in making the right decision, enormous trust that no matter what will happen, it will all be fine. So, of course, they understand it's, that property is not theirs, they don't own it, but they really deal very freely with it and, and in fact, deal with it as if it was their own. And... So there's a sort of a freedom of action of those two slaves. They are filled with trust towards their master so that, you know, even if the investments don't work, they don't seem to be fearing anything because they immediately promptly do it. And they're filled with trust that it actually will work out. But the other guy, the last, the third one, is actually filled with fear. He's driven by fear. And this fear, instead of making him closer to his master, puts a distance. And so his relationship to the master is completely different from the other two's relationship, which is a, a relationship of fundamental trust. The other one is so fearful that he doesn't even consider what he's given is own in any possible way. He doesn't want to have anything to do with what is given. He doesn't see it as a benefit. He doesn't see it as a gift. He doesn't see it as a positive thing. He just sees it as a burden, really. And he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. And he, he puts himself in a distance from the, the talent he has received and also from the master. 
because then he's working on an image of the master that he has formed for himself, which is really negative. First of all, he digs a hole and puts it in. He wants to have nothing to do with this. And then when the master comes back, he tells him to his face, I had heard you were a hard man reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid. And that fear is really at the heart of this parable, this fear of the master. He does not know his master. He does not trust his master. In fact, he thinks fundamentally his master is there to get him. And he wants to be as independent from the master as possible. So here is what you're due. I don't want to have anything to do with it. It was yours. You have it back. Just no bonds, no relation. And in in some extent, the, the, the anger of the master is is bizarre because, yes, he gets back his thing. But so why is he angry? Because the servant has not reciprocated his gift. He has trusted his servant with a gift, according to his ability, it's true, but a gift nonetheless. And the servant has not responded to that gift in kind. He has dismissed that gift entirely. And he has rejected the bond that the gift had already established. He had rejected that trust and there is only fear left. And so the master, if you want, acts now, not out of an angry emotion, but he acts on the decision of the servant who wants to have nothing to do with the gift of the master. And so the master wants to have nothing to do with his servant. If you want, he honors this distanciation, which the servant has already established through his refusal to accept the gift for himself, not as a primary owner, but as a secondary owner, and has only considers the gift as a burden and not as a responsibility or a challenge or an opportunity or something wonderful to be doing for his master out of love for his master. He, that distance is already set. And now if you want, the master enshrines that distance by sending away his servant. So that's what we got from the text. We see that trust and fear. And so we can really see that what distinguishes the first two servants from the last one is whether they are going to participate in the project of the master or are going to remain simply spectator who will not get involved, who will not trust, who will not give of themselves and fulfill that responsibility which is given to them to, to him by the master. So those who participate, if you want, become, are, are left free by the master's absence and, and his gift of his wealth, are left free to become themselves masters not the primary master, not the full owner, but co-owner. They cooperate in the work of the master. They are left to their own device, to their own determination, to their own counsel, to their own decision, to be able to do with the wealth of the master what they think is best and consider that wealth as their own. And in fact, this, is, will, this will be enshrined by the master who will give them that wealth as their own. Their efforts gives them the dignity of participating in the work of the master in some sort of 
equality then, which is established by this bond of trust uh, and co-ownership. Whereas the last servant doesn't want to have anything to do with it and remains as a spectator, will not be involved in the work of the master, will not receive his gift as a gift, but will re receive it as a burden and will not understand himself to be in any way bonded to the master and responsible for the wealth of the master. And this is really what makes it an eschatological parable, is that we can understand those, those relationships or lack of relationship as defining a future. Whether, if we consider the master to be God, whether we take part in the work of God, whether we receive the gifts of God and take ownership of them and participate in his work for his glory in which we share, come and share the joy of the master so that the master raises us at his level or whether we consider the things of God and the work of God as something that does not concern us, in which we're not involved, in which we will only be spectator and in fact in which we will resent whatever is taking place because it will not be taking place on our terms as if it could ever take place on our terms as if we were the master as if we were in charge of deciding who gets what and how and what is being done and how so this has to do with pride and humility this has to do with trust and fear and this has to do with willing to be in the image of God or refusing to be in the image of God. What do I mean by that? Well, we, when, we, when we look at God in this parable, we have two very different images of God given to us. The first image, which is the last image really, <laughs> is given through the words of the, of, the la of the third servant, the one who is given only one talent, who calls the master a hard man. Why? Where did he get that idea? A hard man. And, and in that, there is perhaps some resentment of, again, reproaching God with doing things as he wishes them to be done. Reproaching God for being the creator and the maker, the one who sets the order of the world. An order that is determined solely and supremely by himself and an order in which he invites us to participate. And that is hard, because it is a responsibility. God then does not treat us as if we were trees or animals, unable to determine for ourselves the level of our participation in his plan, just simply being what we are supposed to be. God treats us as co-workers, as his friends with a responsibility which he has given us from creation. So we read in scripture, Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. Even from the beginning of creation, the human person is responsible for some of the part, has a part to play in creation. And this is a dignity beyond 
beyond reckoning that we could not have given ourselves and a dignity that sometimes we tend to see even ourselves as a burden. The master is hard. He asks things of us. Yes, because he gives us the credit and he has great ambitions for us because he has created us in his image and likeness. But really, fundamentally, the, the master presents himself as the hard man in the eyes of the servant who refuses that relationship of dependency with him, who refuses him, who refuses his trust, whereas the master has given him his trust by giving him his, his property. He refuses to trust the master. He refuses to trust himself in investing the property. He does not want that bond of dependency. But really, that's his take. That's his understanding. That's his interpretation of the master. And the relationship of the master with the two other servants denies that. In fact, overall, the master reveals himself to be a giver, someone who gives, who gives what he has, his whole property, who gives not only what he has, but who gives the, the slaves the dignity of being co-workers, who gives them an amazing responsibility who gives them the ability to to cooperate with him in his plan and trusting them with what is his own if you want at the level of creation we can see that as god entrusting us with creation but also god entrusting us with ourselves and and his command his commandments is precisely he wouldn't give us command if he didn't know that we had the ability to obey them. Our very obedience to God is our dignity insofar as, you know, you don't have commandments, again, for carrots and horses. You have some sort of commands for horses, but this is going to be very limited. But you cannot ask a, a, a horse to worship God but you can ask that of a human person who will freely engage with that and freely decide to do that, to do what is right. So we can see that God gives us not only stuff, but he gives us ourselves and he gives us a part in his plan. God reveals himself as well as the gift in, in, in both the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son is is the one who is given. Um, what do I mean by that? Well, the, the, the word that is used for the first and the second servant is the word handed over. The master hands over his property to them. Whereas the third servant merely receives that property. And that word is the one that Jesus uses about himself. It is Jesus who is handed over. Jesus is, if you want, the property of the Father. And of course, that's a, a very limited image. He's not the property. He's the, he's the very beloved of the Father. He's the beloved Son. And we can be reminded of the words of St. John, God so loved the word that he gave his only Son. Jesus is the one who is given to us. So when we look at the wealth of the Master, we can see it in terms of the Son. And we can also see it in terms of the Holy Spirit who is the gift of the Father and the Son. 
the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we're not talking about stuff. We're not talking about riches. We're not talking about money. We're talking about God himself who gives his own life to us. And there is no foot that we can stand on to claim this is not right, this is not as it should be, this is, we sh it should be on our terms and this is too much and how can we, you know. No, this is what God decides. He sets the terms, he gives the gifts. How can he be a hard man when he gives his own life for us? But yes, then the whole setup will be on his terms. And when God gives himself to us, the only response that is fitting is for us to enter into that very self-movement, that very same movement of self-giving. And to some extent, we can see this par the parable of the talent not just as a moral parable of we've got to do something with the gifts that God has given us. It's not just a, a term, uh, the gifts, as in my talents, my skills, my time. Yes, of course, there's all of that. But it's much more than that. God gives himself to us and that calls for a reciprocity and the reciprocity is what we immediately see in the first two servants who immediately go and invest what they have been given. How do they invest it? By giving in the image of God. And so this is, if you want, the master's joy is when he who owns everything as the first cause of everything, who sets everything into being, into motion, when we participate in that movement and, and we take our part in um, the work of love, the work of creation, the work of salvation, we have a part to play. When we do the things that we alone can do by virtue of our dignity as, if you want, of, of a second cause, but as capable of giving the love that we have received. Again, in the rest of creation, of visible creation, carrot won't be able to give the love that it has received in being created. The cat and the dog, that's another matter of contention because, you know, but will they be able to give the same kind of love and and participation into the plan of God as a human person, no. They will be able to give whatever they're able to give. But what we're able to give is in the image of the love of God, who loves us and gives his life for us. We're able to give our life for others. We're able to choose to love. That's our gift. And so when we refuse to enter into that movement, uh, we fail not only to to respond to 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 what uh, we we've been given, and that we fell we fell in our vocation, which is to be more and more in the image of God, but we fail to enter into the Master's joy because His joy is for us to be part of His plan, not just as recipients but as participants. And so that tells us an awful lot about human nature and about and about discipleship and about 
our vocation by nature, by creation, which is to be a second cause. So to participate in the order of creation, to be able to make things that are great, to be able to to contribute to human life in a way that is good and wholesome and building up uh, in every aspect of human society, that we have something unique and positive to contribute, yes, but even more so at the level of grace, that the grace that we have received we are able to share, and that multiplies, because what God gives us is never for ourselves alone. It is primarily for his glory, but it is really to help others to receive that same love which we have received, each according to his ability. Now, how do we understand that? I think this is a very mysterious thing that we can find very difficult in our age when we're so intent on equality. So how do we understand that? There are lots of examples from scriptures that we can use where we see people with different levels of ability who are able to respond to the gift of God. So in the scripture, first of all, we have the disciples, Matthew 4, where they leave everything to follow Jesus by the like of Galilee. And then in Matthew 19, Peter says, well, if we have left everything and followed you, what do we get in return? And if you want, when they leave everything, they, they take on, they inv- that's the time of investment. They have received that love. They invest the same side, the same kind of love in the, in the way that God has given his life for us. And they recognize in Jesus something of that love of God, which is given to them. They respond immediately and give them li- their life to him. And so what will we receive? And Jesus tells them, you will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So it's the multiplication of the talents, if you want. But then we have different little examples in scriptures, which are, are absolutely wonderful in order to understand this multiplication of love, if you want. In Matthew 26, so it's going to come really soon after. And it actually is... Uh, the the practical example of the goat and the sheep. You who did it for any of these little ones did it to me. Well, it's the example of the woman who comes to anoint Jesus with a very expensive ointment. And again, each according to his ability. So she has this expensive ointment. She could have kept it. She could have made a fortune out of it. She could have given it to the poor. She decides to pour it all out for Jesus. That's her investment. That's what she has and that's what she gives. She's not asked to give any more than she has. And she's made exactly the right decision. And this is an eschatological sign as well because it's it's an act, it's an investment that will endure for eternal life. Jesus even says, you know, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. She has, this ointment is, is a sign of someone who has received so much. She has done a beautiful thing for me. And so she responds in kind. She pours out her love for Jesus. And that ointment is the sign. Just as Jesus has poured out his life for us. It's that reciprocity of love. Luke 16, 1931, a scary passage, is the rich man and Lazarus. Now, Lazarus 
has been given nothing. Again, this inequality is here. What has Lazarus been given? Nothing at all. He's a poor man full of sores. And it doesn't seem like we don't know what virtue he has, but the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. So whatever he was able to give, he gave, but that wasn't much. But compare it with the rich man who had been given everything. And the rich man is exactly like the servant who dug that hole and buried his talent. He was given so much and never invested it in the right way because the only investment that matters in the eyes of God is the one that gives away. It's the one that gives freely. It's the one that gives for no reward. And Jesus says that again and again. Luke 14, 12 to 14, when you give a banquet, invite, invite everybody and invite especially those who can't repay you. The poor, the maimed, the lame, the lame, the blind. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's the investment. And the rich man with Lazarus, he has failed his investment. He has failed to invest what he was given, which was not his own to start off with. Because nothing that we have and nothing that we are is fully our own. We are given everything. And in fact, it can be taken away from us at any point. What we are asked is to be responsible with what we have been given. And that's not just material riches, it's also you know, human riches, intellectual riches, it's time and it's, but primarily this is all condensed in our ability to love. And sometimes those riches will be absolutely minimal. We will have no material riches. We will have very little intellectual riches. We will have very little social riches. But our ability to love is what determines uh, our future. And this is where, again, Another example, you know, of this inequality, this differing ability is the poor widow who has nothing. So that's in Luke 21, 1, 4. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and he saw a poor widow putting two copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them for they all contributed of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all the living that she had. That's the wise investment. What does success look like? Well, if we understand the fortune to be love, the love of God, or God's own life of grace, and us, the response that we make in, in you know, multiplying this love with our love as it were, as it were possible, but through God's grace to be able to respond and so to share that love. We end up with an image of the church, which is a communion of charity, where the love of God is being shared. And so the success is being enriched, not through money, but through charity. That's the communion of saints. That's the treasury of the church. That's where I am not the only one enjoying my talent all on my own. I give away my talent so that I have five more, as it were, five more people who are with me enjoying the goodness and the treasure and the property of the Lord who is master of all. So by sharing, I extend the property of the master, the kingdom of heaven. I hope that makes sense. But the goods that we are given, that we are entrusted with, 
are not monetary goods. They are spiritual goods. The grace of God, the life of Jesus in us, the Holy Spirit, the sacraments of the church, the word of God. This is the treasury of the church. This is the treasure at the heart of the church, which is ours. And it's been entrusted to us until the Lord comes. What are we doing with this treasure? And each to his own ability so that I'm not called to be a, a wonderful theologian or I'm not, I don't have a great mystical life. I, I'm, I'm a mom, I'm a layperson, I have a job. According to my ability, how can I share the treasure of Christ that has been entrusted to me through my baptism? That's my responsibility. And so the success is sharing, multiplying the joy by sharing the treasure. It really is making that treasure available to everyone. And whereas the, the kingdom of the world, if you want, idea of success is hoarding in a bank as much property as possible. The kingdom of God is the total opposite. It's sharing, it's giving away, being poured out like the ointment of the, of the woman. It's, it's absolutely free, completely trusting gift of everything we are and everything we have in the image of God who gives and pours away everything he is and everything he has primarily in the sending of his son and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So this is a complete reversal, if you want, of values where we can refuse to enter that movement where, where it does look very difficult to enter that movement if we're not trusting the master, if we think he's a hard man because he's asking too much of us by giving away what he has given us. It can be difficult to respond. It's, it, that's why the Lord says, blessed are those who with a good and generous heart hear the word of God and bear fruit through their perseverance. That's, if you want, again, to, to match again another parable, that's the soil in which that gift is given needs to be fertile. It needs to be receptive to the grace of God so that it can produce more fruit, so that it can multiply. That's the investment. What is, uh, I think, the major point in this parable is the, that our responsibility is crucial in participating in the kingdom of heaven. That God, will, who has made us without us, will not save us without us. That God, who has all the treasures and all the riches, and who, has, who would have been able to do everything as he wants without us, wants us to be part of his plan, not just as recipients, but as actors. And so the investment of my own poor little love, uh, which I would, could think, well, doesn't really matter in the eyes of God, is actually essential to his plan. And things will not happen if I refuse my love to him. And certainly if I refuse to enter into that movement, to reciprocate his gift with my gift, 
I, I, I will separate myself from him. So he tells us about the very, very difficult, uh, very hard consequences of our choice because he takes us seriously. He takes everything we do seriously. He takes every one of our choices seriously because he has given us this ability to love. And that's ours to exercise. <laughs>